Hello and welcome to the 21st Century Leadership Podcast. I'm Brett Sadler and in this series I'm exploring how leaders need to respond to the challenges and changes of our times. For over a year now I've been recording conversations with top leaders and leadership thinkers and throughout this series we'll be delving ever deeper into some of the profound shifts that are going to shape the new leadership landscape in the years ahead. Today we'll be hearing from Matthew Taylor, CEO of the RSA. RSA is short for the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Commerce and Manufactures, and it was founded by enlightened business philanthropists in 1754. Long titles were very popular back then. Most of you will have heard of Matthew through his role in chairing the government's Taylor Review into the future of work. So although it's not addressing 21st century leadership directly, I thought it would provide useful perspective in terms of the context. Due to Matthew's schedule, we had to have the conversation by phone, so apologies if the sound quality is not so great. Thanks for coming along today, Matthew. Uh, First off, um, can you tell me a bit about how you came to be involved with the review, and why did the government ask you in particular? Uh, I think, um, uh, first of all, I'm delighted to be having the conversation with you. I think um, it probably reflected a kind of combination of things. The RSA had done on a lot of work on um, of employment, gig work. Um, so I think we'd established a profile in the area of thinking about how work is, is changing. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I have a reputation for being a kind of progressive but pragmatic thinker. So somebody who would have credibility but um, would hopefully come up with a set of recommendations that were realistic for a, a government, which at that stage was kind of wanting to position itself as quite centrist. Um, yeah. And then I think it's just a matter of, you know, luck really that you happen to be the name that pops up in a meeting in number 10 to discuss something and you happen to be next to the phone when it rings, etc. So, you know, it's a variety of, like most things, it's a kind of variety of design and luck and charm. <laughs> okay. So, um, T- tell me a bit about the challenges in actually getting to grips with with the various things that are going on and you know, managing the team as well. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that uh, the, the biggest challenge was was biggest challenges were that it was a relatively small period of time that we had to do the report, which is kind of slightly ironic given how long it's taken the government to respond, <laughs> um, and that I had to steer a course between um, what, in a way, you might want in a perfect world, what the world you might wish is, the world you might, as you might wish it to be, and the need for practical recommendations that would have a chance of being implemented, and which would, but which would nevertheless be a significant first step towards a better work. And the way that I resolve that issue reflects the way the RSA thinks about change. So we have a, a, a slogan that we use here to in, in embody the way in which we think change is most effectively pursued. We talk about thinking like a system and acting like an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of apply, uh, applied that approach to this work in the sense that I stood back from the very specific issues of employment status, and gig work, and zero-hours contracts, and such like, and... I asked bigger questions about what do we mean by good work and how might we get a societal commitment to improving the quality of work. 
And that thinking about the system as a whole and having recommendations which covered a whole lot of areas and talking about a whole lot of areas, then set against that is a more incremental and pragmatic approach to how it is you embark upon the process of change. So the vision was big, the principles were big, but the immediate steps that I recommended were ones that I felt could be done without risks of a kind of backlash or risks that by improving the quality of work we somehow undermined what, what Britain has quite, been quite good at, which is quantity of work. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, let, let's just rewind a little bit to um, what were the key drivers to the report being commissioned and you know, what, what are the specific challenges that it's designed to address? So I think that there was a um, political um, imperative, which was that the government wanted to demonstrate that it was uh, inclusive. And this you know, reflects the kind of comments that Theresa May made when she was first um, elected prime minister. Um, there was a response to public concern because there was a growing spate of stories around companies like Bolt Direct and Amazon and particular forms of zero hours warehouse work in particular, but also other forms of kind of exploitation. And then thirdly, a sense that technology is fast changing the context in which this conversation takes place. And that was particularly around you know, new platforms like Uber and Deliveroo, but also about more broadly the way in which technology is going to change um, work. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, as a result of that, you came up with some principles uh, for good work. H how do you define good work or how did the commission um, decide good, good work should look? So we, um, I based the idea of good work on, you know, quite a body of existing research on what matters to people at work. And I didn't try to do original research on what good work comprises because I think that there is a reasonably strong consensus about what matters to people at work. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And indeed, since the review, I've been co-chairing a report, uh, a study with the Carnegie Trust, which will be published in September, which is around metrics of good work, and how the government can stand by its commitment to measure and report on the quality of work in the, in the British economy. So, you know, oh, we know that in a sense there's a kind of Maslow's hierarchy when it comes to work. People do care about basic terms and conditions and health and safety and those kinds of things. And if those aren't in place, then, you know, that really undermines everything else. Mm -hmm. Beyond that, people then care about things like work-life balance. Um, so the degree to which the work fits in with the rest of their lives. Then people care about things like... Um, autonomy and control and the sense that you are treated as a human being, not as a cog in a machine. Uh, and also then people care about meaning and purpose and a sense that their work is of value. So these things build on each other and people you know, like me, and I guess you probably, you know, we want work that goes all, and includes all those levels of Maslow's hierarchy, as it were. We want work that ticks all those boxes. But I was particularly concerned with people at the bottom end of that, you know, and I made no bones about the fact that 
know, although I know middle class people and professional people and well off freelancers have all sorts of issues, that I don't think is the priority for public policy. The priority for public policy is the people at the bottom end of the labour market because unfortunately, like lots of things in British society, bad things go together. So the people with the worst pay and the worst conditions are also the ones with the lowest prospects, the least likely to be heard to work, the most likely to suffer from bullying, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and what's your view of the um, image of the millennial generation who are all having portfolio careers, li- living the dream, and basically picking and choosing who they work for and really looking for organizations that um, that have, have purpose and and create that meaning that you were talking about. Do you think that's a bit of um, an idealized vision? Uh, is, is that real in, in the economy? I think it's um, overstated. <clears throat> but that isn't to say that I don't think there are elements of truth in it. So firstly, I think, again, it depends enormously on who we're talking about. And yes, you know, I have spoken about good work in places like central London law firms, and there they will say to you, there's been a big shift. Young people used to come here 20 years ago and be willing to work you know, crazy hours and crazy intensity for 15 years, 10, 15 years to become partners. Mm. Young people now aren't interested in that. You know, mm. They'll work for three or four years and they want to travel the world, do something else. So we've got to have a different model of partnership, which isn't about saying the way you become a partner is to you know, kill yourself and not see your family. Yeah, yeah. But that's okay. a very different experience to, you know, recruiting young people to work in, you know, Nando's or an Amazon warehouse. So that, that's the first thing. Anything we say about workers has got to be qualified by saying which workers are we talking Yeah, about. yeah. Yeah, and, and, and that, that's an interesting group, secondly, isn't it? I think that... that Yes, people do care about meaning and purpose at work, but meaning and purpose can mean lots of different things. And so we sometimes think, well, that means people want to work for a firm that is kind of progressive and socially responsible. And it does mean that to an extent, but it might also people get meaning and purpose from just working in an organization with good management. Mm-hmm. And actually, I think more people uh, are intolerant of just being badly managed at work. Because, you know... If you make widgets, you're doing something of value and purpose because we need widgets. Mm-hmm. Uh, the question is, do you work in a workplace where there is a sense of common endeavor and commitment to service and commitment to quality? Or do you work in a workplace where you are merely told what to do and where you often feel that the company is only interested in maximizing profits, even if that isn't at the expense of workers and consumers? I, th- I think that um, this whole thing about meaning is, is something that um, most managers are actually quite poor at and in communicating meaning. Um, an example I always use is before I got married, I, I met um, my fiancé's uh, maid of honour and she was telling me about the work she did. And basically she was um, manufacturing printed circuits and nobody had, had actually told her the impact of of that because they were actually going into the control systems for concord so that was very much about people's safety and and you know without the management getting that message across it was just a job and so i think that there's definitely a a role that management and leadership can play in creating that bigger picture and understanding of exactly 
why it is that people are doing what they're doing. Of course, that relates to that, you know, well-known and probably, it's probably an urban myth, isn't it? But the person who stopped a man sweeping leaves outside NASA and said, what are you doing? And he said, I'm helping man reach the moon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, in the report, you talk about various steps towards decent work without getting bogged down in national policy and the details of, of, of how governments work. Um, what do you think are the key things that need to happen? And also, where is the responsibility between government and commerce in making that, that happen? How, how do we work together to create that kind of outcome? Yeah, so I think there's the areas that are responsibility of government, the areas that are responsibility of business, and the areas which where there is a kind of shared responsibility, and if both work together, they can achieve progress. So, you know, it is up to government to set the right regulatory framework. Um, you know, businesses, there is a tired and boring assumption that businesses are opposed to regulation. The you know, reality is that businesses don't really like change, but they want a regulatory framework where they can compete on the basis of innovation and quality, not on the basis of arbitraging the system. And so, you know, one of the things I was at pains to point out in my work was that when in our system, which allows people too easily to uh, to, to uh, misdescribe people as self-employed when they are actually ought to be described as workers or employees, and mm -hmm. th and then thereby reduce their tax bill significantly. Uh, that that is a problem, you know, for the taxpayer and for the worker, but it's also a massive problem for people who are trying to compete with that company on the basis of actually observing the spirit of the law. Mm -hmm. So yeah. the government needs to set the framework on the basis of principles of social justice and fairness, but also making sure that the, com the competition is on the basis of things that we care about, not on the basis of your ability to find loopholes in the system. Mm -hmm. yeah. Business has a responsibility to be a good citizen, and you know it is now the case that company boards are required to con give consideration to the impact of their decisions on all stakeholders, and you know workers are critical stakeholders, and so businesses can do a lot. And the good news is that if businesses do spend time thinking about how to motivate and engage their employees and treat their employees fairly, they will almost certainly have employees who are more productive and more innovative. And so there is a win-win. And I'm glad to see the work of organizations like Be The Business who are proselytizing for the notion that higher levels of staff engagement and better people management is the route to higher productivity. And of course, productivity is a, is a big problem for us. Yeah, and yeah. Then in that middle space, there are the kind of use of devices like uh, right to request, um, transparency, which we've seen, for example, over the gender pay gap, where, what, where government doesn't tell business what to do, but it requires business to be open and to make things possible to build a kind of dynamic of change into the system. So I argued, for example, for a right to request a permanent contract for anybody who has been on a non-fixed non hours or temporary work for a year so, you know, that doesn't mean you've got to employ people who've been on those contracts, but it means that you've got to respond to the press. And I also said that companies would have to be, um, would have to publish data on how many of those requests they, requests they had exceeded to. Mm -hmm. I also argued that companies should be required to be more transparent about what goes on in their labor supply chain, so that very often examples of bad practice you see in the distribution sector, for example, well, when it's found out that a van driver... Um, is being portrayed as self-employed and not given any money for 
sick pay or being punished when they have to go and visit their sick child in hospital um, when really that person should be being treated as a worker and getting worker rights. That's often a small outfit doing that or a medium-sized outfit doing that, but the question is whose parcels are they delivering? And yeah. the openness about the supply chain means that companies that really do care about their reputation need to think very carefully about, for example, who is in their distribution network. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I think what's really helpful is for consumers to understand what they're paying for, because they, they do think that they're actually paying for the thing that they're getting, whereas actually, in reality, what they're paying for is is the uh, lifestyle of all the people that had a hand in bringing that thing to them. Uh, and um, so often when we squeeze the supply chain on price, then it's the people at the bottom end that, that, that really uh, are squeezed the most. Uh, and uh, so I think there's a certain amount of responsibility on the consumer as well in that. I think that's right, you know, and I think that one of the things that's kind of slightly missing in the debate at the moment, but it's growing, is we need a kind of wider understanding of the implications. I think you're exactly right, that we need a wider understanding of the implications of consumer choices. So, you know, I think, for example, that a delivery company that said to people, or, a, you know, a, 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 a retail outfit that said to people, look, you know, here's your delivery options. You can ask for 24-hour delivery. Um, if you do that, then we'll be using a service where people, you know, do work around the clock and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, your service, your, it'll be a bit more expensive. Or you can choose option two, which is that you'll get it within three days, but you'll get it from people who are able to work normal working hours. And, you know what I mean? I think it would be good if consumer I, I if i was faced with that choice i think i would say oh actually do i really need this pair of trousers now or this book now you know, i'd much rather it was delivered to me by somebody being decently paid working reasonable hours than the fact that it's being chucked into my garden by someone who's utterly exhausted and being exploited absolutely now, we've seen the development of that kind of thing in relation to fair trade although there's a lot of criticisms of fair trade so i i think in the future, it would be good, and I think I think it probably will happen, that more brands start to say, well, look, part of our brand is the opportunity for consumers to say, I want a service that, I, I want to receive a service that doesn't inherently make unreasonable demands on the people providing that service to me. Uh, uh. So, um, get, getting back to the subject of, of leadership, um, how, how do you think leaders need to change their approach in order to bring about some of these realities? Um, well, I, I think I think this is a slightly complex point, but it's a complex and difficult issue. I think if you're talking about corporate leaders, then I think corporate leaders need to bear in mind two converse realities. And one is a positive reality, and that's the reality of synergy. And that is the reality that says, look, in lots of ways, if you were a more responsible business, if you treated your workers better, if you were more how your practices are more sustainable, if you thought more profoundly about your relationship with the community, or whatever it might be, you are likely to be a better business with more productive, more loyal workers and better product. And that's great. So that's to be the business argument, the synergy argument. <laughs> but I also think as a leader, you've got to be brave enough to say that there are also real trade-offs and challenges, and that 
sometimes doing the right thing will conflict with a simple bottom line view that you should measure your performance in terms of market share and profitability. And that is hard because that's what shareholders want. And there is a genuine gap between stakeholders and shareholders. And you can't wish that away. So I think what leaders need to do is to say, okay, where, are synerg- where the synergies are there, I'm going to absolutely grab those synergies. I'm going to absolutely do the things which are both good for stakeholders and good for my bottom line. But in the other areas, the areas where there are difficult trade-offs and conflicts, I'm going to be open about it. I'm going to be open about it and share the dilemma that I've got and try to work with my shareholders, with my business model, in order to reduce the intensity of these challenges and trade-offs. And I think that probably too often we shy away from the second side of that conversation. It's very easy for consultants and charities and CSR outfits to say, look, all good things go together. But all good things don't go together. And if leadership... if all good things went together, leadership would be very easy. So I think we need to recognize the challenges and trade-offs as well as exploiting the synergies. Yeah, yeah. Um, Something that I I like in the report is is the fact that it focuses on a holistic approach to to work. And a a couple of the things that it touches upon are um, health and well-being and also lifelong learning, which I think are are also very important. And I'm, I'm sure there's a role for leaders there in um, ensuring that they role model a balanced approach to work rather than um, being the ones that are demonstrating sort of workaholic tendencies and expecting everyone else to follow suit. Um, so what, what's your view on, on that element of it? Yeah, I think that's an interesting question. Uh, look, you know, I am the advocate of good work. I believe that as I said earlier in our conversation, that there are measurable, consistent criteria for what good work is. But I also recognize that one's attitude to work is subjective and personal. Mm -hmm. A few days before I published my report, I went to a party and I arrived at the same time as a young man wearing a Deliveroo box on his back. So I said to him in a kind of playful way, you know, I'm producing a report next week and maybe I'll, you know, enhance your rights. And he said to me, well, thanks a lot, mate, but I don't want any rights. I just want money for beer and pizza. (laughs) Now, the point there is that actually I've got no problem with a lot of the work that platforms generate. I've got no problem with a lot of zero hours work. And I particularly haven't got a problem if it's people doing it because it just fits their life. It fits their stage of life. It's not their kind of future career. They've got choices, but this is just a way of earning a buck, and and that's kind of fine. We've all done those kind of jobs from time to time. You know, I've been a street cleaner. I've been a worked on a supermarket checkout. I've worked behind a bar. You know, so on the one hand, you've got to recognise that the meaning of work in people's lives varies depending on what how old they are and what their circumstances are an extent of what their aspirations are. But secondly, you know, you've got to recognize that different people want different things out of work. For some people, sociability is the critical thing. You know, this is particularly true, I think, of a lot of older workers, you know, who may have, you know, a reasonable retirement income, but don't want to be stuck at home on their own, and so are very happy to do a job 
and that the money isn't as important as getting out and meeting people and talking to people. And if you said to those people, well, do you want to be engaged in the company strategy? They'd say, well, I'm not sure, really, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I, I, when you ask the question, should leaders you know, show lead by example in terms of kind of work-life balance, I'm kind of ambivalent about that. You know, I run the RSA. I, for me, the RSA is my life. You know, I wake up in the morning thinking, how can I make it better? I go to bed at night thinking, how can I make it better? I feel enormous joy when someone at the RSA does something clever, and I feel huge frustration when the RSA doesn't, isn't effective. I don't expect everyone else in this organization to feel the same way as I do, mm-hmm. actually. I, and so, therefore, if I work at weekends or in the evenings, I, what I want to say is not... Um, that, that that's wrong. But what would be wrong would be for me to assume that other people in the organization who earn less than me and have less authority than me and for whom the RSA is a staging post in their longer career, that they too should feel as obsessive as I do. So I think the problem is not that leaders should model the behavior for other people. It's that leaders should be clear that being a leader leads to responsibilities and a, and a relationship with work. And what people shouldn't think is that because the lead, what I think some leaders do is go, well, I'm working my bollocks off. So why aren't you? Well, I'm not because I earn a fifth as much as you do. I'm not because if the company gets into trouble, I'll be laid off, whereas you'll still get a bonus. You know, so I kind of think I'm I'm not I, I, I'm a bit skeptical about the argument that says leaders ought to model the behaviour of the people in the organisation. I mean, certainly when it comes to things like relationships and bullying and all that, absolutely. I mean, leaders ought to be better than everybody else in that regard when it comes to those behavioural norms. Yeah. But when it comes to the choices. People make over their, you know, whether they want to work long hours and with, intensively. I, I shy away from something that says there is only one way to define what good work is, and that we've all got to kind of subscribe to that. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's, that's an interesting point, um, and I think it leads into my approach of leaders being responsible for the big how. I, I always call it the big how because. Uh, there's a big how and a little how, and the little how is the detail of process and, and how things are actually done. And then the big how is more about the, the sort of style, the standards, um, and the values that are, are attached to it. And I think that is where the leader's role is particularly important in ensuring that that they do model that out. Um, and people, by and large, tend to do what's rewarded. So uh, as long as they see people being rewarded and getting good feedback for doing things the right way, then um, that helps to um, embed that in the organisation. So well, I think that's you know, a very important part of it. As I say, I drive my family mad by the fact that <laughs> I enjoy working on holiday and I you know, will often do emails at midnight and get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and work. Last week, I asked, and when I was on holiday, uh, I sent an email, I was asked the question, I sent an email around saying nobody must be required to come to the office today, it's too hot. So you know you can you can have an attitude for yourself which you don't expect and want to impose on other people. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think we all um, demand a lot of ourselves as leaders, and it's unreasonable to expect everyone to have the same level of commitment, uh, and can cause a lot of problems if you do. Yeah, so it's finding that right balancing act. Whenever I'm it? in doubt, I remind myself of how I felt when I was filling custard tarts for ASDA in Leamington Spa. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to earn money for beer. Yeah. And, if anyone had said to me then, well, you ought to have a much greater autonomy and commitment and engagement and trust or something at work, I'd have said, what are you talking about? So, you know, 
I say all this as somebody who does believe that there is such a thing as good work and that we should strive for it. I just want us to be realistic about recognising that that is not for everybody and not all the time. Okay, so just to finish off with then, um, fast forward, say, 15, 20 years' time, uh, what's work going to look like then? And, and how is leadership going to have to um, embrace that world of work? Do you know what? I think work won't look that different in 20 years' time. I mean, I think, look, the fact about prediction is that we will get some things completely right and some things completely wrong. I, I'm always very fond of the... I like to cite a piece of work that was done in the 1960s where a group of futurists were asked to predict the future. And they were actually very good on predicting technology. You know, they predicted the internet. They predicted you know, quite a lot of, of things that happened. You know, not exactly, but more or less got it right. They didn't predict the rise of single parenthood. They didn't predict the rise of, you know, shifting attitudes towards sexuality or whatever. They got they didn't get any of the social change. So, mm -hmm. so I, I think that I'm very hostile to technological determinism. I think that our record in predicting how technology will change work is very poor, not just at the level of the economy as a whole, but even in individual sectors. You know, I often talk about the music industry where you know, 10 years ago, people would say the music industry is dead because of streaming and pirating. What they didn't realize was two things. First of all, that our mobile phones would turn into the combination of a radio station and a record library. And secondly, that our country, which until this year could be trusted to have terrible summers, would go from having 10 <coughs> festivals a year to having 1,500 music festivals a year. So, you know music industry hasn't died as a consequence of technological change. It's shifted its business model. You know, bands used to go on tour to sell their records. They now put records on, they now download music to YouTube to sell tickets to their concerts. So I'm very resistant to technological determinism. So when you say, what will work be like in 20 years? My default is to say, I think it won't be as much change as people think. I think there are reasons why people work in organizations. I think organizations give people satisfactions that working on your own don't give people, so I don't think we're all going to become freelancers. Uh, I think that there's no reason to believe that there won't be plenty of jobs in 20 years, but they will probably, you know, there'll be even fewer jobs in manufacturing, I'm sure, mm -hmm. and even more jobs in services. What those services will be, I don't know, but that could all be wrong, you know, because norms and values shift as well, and who knows? In 20 years, we might have been living with the universal basic income for 10 years, and we might have a much more relaxed attitude to people taking reasonably significant breaks from work to retrain, reskill, refocus. We might have become a less materialistic society as a consequence of the need to take really, really radical action on emissions. So I would basically say let's assume not as much will change as we think it will, and let's focus on what we need to do now rather than spending a lot of time throwing mad statistics around about how everything's going to change in 20 years, which can sometimes lead us to say, well, well there's no point doing anything now because it's all going to change. Mm -hmm. let's, <laughs> yeah. focus now. let's focus on making things better now. Let's do what we can to understand how the future is going to change. But I, you know, it, I'll just finish with this. It is a unfortunate reality that if I publish a book tomorrow called Nobody really knows what technological change will mean for the labor market. Some jobs will go, some jobs will be created, many jobs will change. It's all quite complex. Mm 
I will probably sell fewer copies than if I published a book tomorrow saying by next Tuesday will all be algorithms and 10 million people will be unemployed. So there is a kind of natural tendency in the discourse to publicize extreme and concrete predictions. And so my answer to your question is, uh, let's be moderate and let's be indeterminate and let's focus on what we do next. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Super. Well, thank you very much for your time, Matthew. R really enjoyed listening to your insights. Some interesting thoughts there from Matthew. For me, a great takeaway from that conversation was the importance of being pragmatic about what's achievable. There's a saying that if you want people to get on the bus, you have to stop at their bus stop. As leaders, if we want to instigate change, we often have to meet our people where they are and start the process with steps that they can easily take, rather than hitting them with huge new concepts. So, after today's slight diversion into what's going on at a political level, Next time, we'll be back on track, hunting down what it means to be a 21st century leader. I'll be joined by David Rook, who co-wrote the influential Harvard Business Review paper, The Seven Transformations of Leadership, and Jennifer Garvey-Berger, whose book, Unlocking Leadership Mind Traps, looks at, well, unlocking leadership mind traps. To find out what they are, join me for episode five of the 21st Century Leadership podcast. So until then, it's goodbye from me. If you'd like to get in touch about any of the topics raised in this podcast, or if you'd like to discuss other aspects of leadership development and business strategy, just send an email to podcast at ukleadershipacademy.com. I look forward to hearing from you.